Hello and welcome to Out of Order, a German Marshall Fund podcast. My name is Peter Sparding. I'm a fellow here at GMF and I will be your host once again. So as regular listeners know, this is a podcast about the changing international order. And we often talk about specific countries or regions. But this week, we wanted to tackle one of the broader overarching issues that impacts this changing international environment. And that's the issue of the technological revolution and all of the questions that come with it. For this discussion, I'm really happy to have an extremely good lineup of experts here with me. So let me briefly introduce them. First, we welcome back Amy Studdard, fellow here at the German Marshall Fund. Hello, thanks for having me back. Then we have Danny Sepulveda with us, who is a non-resident fellow with GMF and vice president for global government relations at MediaMath. And for this discussion, maybe of great significance, uh, your former U.S. ambassador, deputy assistant secretary of state and U.S. coordinator for international communications and information policy. I wrote this down so I wouldn't mess it <laughs> up. So welcome, Danny. Thank you very much. So you're well-versed in the international and diplomatic aspects of this. And speaking of well-versed in diplomacy, it's my special pleasure to welcome for the first, but hopefully not last time to this podcast, the president of GMF, Karen Donfried, who of course also has served at many different levels of the U.S. government and is quite familiar with the international debate about these issues. Well, I'm delighted to be on my inaugural appearance on Out of Order. Thanks, Peter. We're glad to have you. So let me begin maybe with the broader question uh, to set the scene. As someone who doesn't spend all of his time thinking about these issues, it can sometimes be a bit difficult to follow along uh, in these debates, because I think there's so many different aspects that people put together when they talk about tech. So there's a discussion about social media that's especially active right now when it comes to the elections and so on. There's a whole different discussion about the future of work and the impact of new technologies there. There's a huge and broad discussion about privacy and surveillance. And then there's another subset of a discussion that's the future of conflict, war, cyber threats, and so on. I'm sure there are even more, but we, as in the general public, when we put all of these together, we have a big tech discussion. So I thought one of the things we should try to do here is sort this out a little bit and see if we can make this less confusing to people like me and figure out what's the most urgent issue here and where the fault lines are and, and so on. So maybe to sort this out, I'll start with Danny and have him uh, set the scene a bit. So Danny, we titled this episode, The Battle for the Future. And in previous episodes, we compared this, this competition to the situation of the space race in the 1960s. Um, which was the competition between the United States and the Soviet Union, to the race to the moon, JFK, and, and all of that. If this is the space race of our time, what is the moon landing? What is it we're even competing about? Who is the we? Is it companies? Is it the governments? And who is the other side? Who are we competing against? Well, thanks again for the invitation. Uh, it's, a, it's actually a super interesting question, the way you framed it. I spent four years traveling two to three weeks out of the month, either to a bilateral discussion and negotiation or a multilateral discussion and negotiation on, on this very subject. And the underlying question is, as we shift from an industrial society to what at the UN is called an information society, how are we going to make sure that we are managing and um, shaping the future rather than reacting to technological developments and letting technology, you know, shape us? And it's a give and take, uh, but you listed a series of issues where that's that's the underlying question. And, and the framing for the question of whether we're in a competition is, is yes, we're in a competition for the future. And there is a, a – not to oversimplify, but there is an authoritarian vision of what that looks like. Um, there is a Western vision of what that looks like. And there is a sort of non-aligned <laughs> vision of what that looks like. And establishing agreement – uh, an alignment with our friends who want to shape these markets and shape the development of technologies for the future of humanity in the way that we've understood individual rights uh, and the expression and exercise of Western values is, is what, when we were in office, we were trying to do. Um, and that requires not just alliances among nations, but as you said, because technology, at least today, is largely privately driven. It requires this alliance that is both corporate and governmental in addition to the views that inform that from civil society, organizations like the German Marshall Fund, but also academic institutions and non-governmental organizations that focus on the exercise of rights and how the development of technology enables or disables the exercise of those rights. So that's the, the big picture, um, and we can delve into that as we move forward. So let me quickly follow up um, on this 
with um, Amy. So I'm going to move ahead with my metaphor of the space race just for a moment. So the space race was launched as a response, at least this is the popular telling. Uh, it's part of a, there was a scare in the US after the Soviet Union successfully launched satellites and, and sent a man into space. And people were feeling that the US or the West was falling behind in this technological battle. So my question is, what is the equivalent today? I'm asking this because I sometimes wonder, I mean, people like you guys who, fo who follow this closely know that we're in a competition or, or see it that way. But is this a general assessment? Do we know that we're in a competition? And what is at stake for average people? So, I mean, to go back to your... Um to the earlier question about what are what is what is the race to right in the past it was the race to the moon i think that now one of the really distinct things about this period is we don't actually know and so you have a country like china that is saying okay we want to be at the forefront of whatever it is quantum computing artificial intelligence space genetics whatever the technology is we want to be there um With the internet, we didn't know that it was going to be the internet, right? When the internet was invented, it was just supposed to be a mechanism for communication between researchers. And then it turned into this major thing that completely transformed the world. Um, and yes, there are challenges with it, but thank God democratic societies were at the forefront of shaping what that would look like. Because imagine what that tool looks like in the hands of an authoritarian government. I mean, you don't have to imagine, but <laughs> imagine if it's, if it's created by an authoritarian government. So... I think that a part of the challenge right now is we don't know what it is, what the ground we, it is that we're competing on. Um, we're competing for future technology, whatever that might be. Um, and then there's an interesting question that you just asked about. So do we know that we're in a competition? And I think that the interesting thing there is various different actors are aware that we're in some kind of competition, right? So the defense establishment knows that we are in a competition for the future of what the military looks like and what strategic interests looks like and how we defend those and what military technology looks like. And so they look at something like artificial intelligence and they say, this is a dual-use technology. And the fact that a China is at the forefront of it means terrible things for, you know, what our strategic advantage looks like in the future. Um, or they look at space and the fact that China is um, China has the capacity to shoot down U.S. satellites, which says, you know, um, if if China were to shoot down a U.S. satellite, it would essentially destroy modern military communications. And so there, there's that version of the competition. Then the private sector also knows that it's in a competition, right? So they know they're in a competition for talent with China, whether it's over artificial intelligence again, which I think is really the focus point at the moment. But I would argue that that's true across all of the different technological frontiers at the moment um, in a comp in a competition for um, uh, they're in a competition for um, market. So, you know, Chinese companies are at a major advantage when it comes to going out into developing countries because they have the backing of, um, of the Chinese government. Uh, U.S. companies are sort of trying to figure out how to compete in that space. And so, yes, Facebook and Google are very dominant at the moment, but what does that look like in the future as developing countries come online and start to use these services? So I think that there's sort of, there's an understanding of sectoral competition, but not necessarily of the broad competition in the U.S. and Europe. Um, in China, the conception of the competition is we want to win the future, full stop. And Beijing is on board with that. Beijing has sort of issued this demand that the private sector follow along with it. And we haven't done that in the U.S. or in Europe. Let me just do a quick follow-up. Is it only China? So that we're clear about when we talk about the competition. Because in the space race, of course, it's two places. Here, is it, is it China and the West, or is there someone else? I mean, you don't have in a Russia or an India or a Brazil the resources and capacity to dominate in the same way. So yes, there are actors that are leading in specific elements of industry and are competitive in specific elements of industry, but not, I mean, it's really the U.S., maybe the U.S. and Europe versus China, but probably at the moment the U.S. versus China. So let's look at the U.S. and Europe you just mentioned there at the end, and that, that brings me to the next question. And it already kind of signaled something. In a way, the U.S. and Europe sometimes look at these issues differently. And then there are issues where, where we look at them similarly. Amy mentioned, you know, from a military point of view, for example, there's a competition um, going on between the U.S. and China. That, you know, I'm sure European defense thinkers think about this, but clearly they're not 
thinking about it in the same global scale. Similarly, you mentioned markets and the uh, race for talents. I mean, the big tech companies are all American. Europe has a very different landscape in this regard. Well, there are a lot of very big Chinese tech companies. Of course, of course. I mean, now in the on the on the transatlantic place, there's this difference. So I'm wondering, and I'm going to ask Karen here, given these these differences and the broader um, clashes, so to say, that we've seen between Europe and the U.S. when it comes to questions of privacy and, and so on. Do you see Europe and the U.S. share enough values to enter this this overall battle that we've described? First, I want to say that I think it's so important to have this conversation around technology and digitalization through the prism of transatlantic relations, because there are a lot of people in the transatlantic relations space like me who know a lot about the U.S. and Europe from a very traditional perspective of the security relationship and the role of NATO or the economic relationship and the role of the European Union. But we really haven't updated our perspective to think about what Danny talked about, the age of information, and how that infuses every aspect of the transatlantic relationship. So for us at GMF, it's terrific to have people like Amy, who are on staff, like Danny, who are affiliated, who are saying, pay attention to this and think about the implications. It gets back to a point Danny made about there are essentially three camps. You have the autocrats, you have the West, and you have the non-aligned. And that those divisions apply to how we see the role of technology. And I can commend to you a transatlantic take that Danny wrote looking broadly at transatlantic relations and technology. And I thought what was really interesting is he started the piece by saying the U.S. and Europe since the creation of the internet, share a vision of an open open global platform, and they see the internet as a force for good. But then he says the U.S. and Europe aren't twins, and there are a lot of things that divide us as well. And that's the challenge. So let's just take a couple of the things that divide us. One clearly is that There is competition. And much of Europe looks at the U.S. and says, you have these enormous tech companies that have just taken over. And we're not concerned about this for business reasons. We're concerned about it also because of underlying values. Now, this is where you start getting to the differences of opinion. Because U.S. tech companies say, oh, those enormous fines that the European Commission is levying on us actually are because they are concerned about the competition from U.S. tech. Whereas the Europeans are saying, no, it's that these enormous tech companies in the U.S. aren't playing by the rules. And so it becomes a deeply contentious issue across the Atlantic because there are differences in perspective about whether fundamentally it's an economic competition or whether there are underlying rules and values that American companies are abrogating. And I was in government when the Snowden disclosures broke and had a front row seat on what was perceived primarily as a values difference. Europeans feeling that they were much more concerned about privacy rights than Americans were and that Americans were willing to throw their privacy rights out the window because we were so concerned about security. I think that's not actually true. I think Americans are equally concerned about privacy rights as Europeans are. But unpacking these issues has been extremely challenging within the transatlantic relationship. And I find this frustrating because when you step back and see the wider world and worry about what the Chinese are trying to do in this space or how the Russians are using this space to influence elections in the U.S. or influence elections in Europe, it seems to me that there's so much more that should unite us in the transatlantic space rather than our focusing on the differences between us. And actually, I'd love to pivot off that. And Danny was one of the folks charged with trying to manage these differences of opinion. So, Danny, I'd love your thoughts on how do we try to get to a place where Americans and Europeans can focus more on what unites us and manage, perhaps in a less emotional way, the things that divide us in the tech digitalization space. Right. And thank you very much for that. I think that frames it frames it very well. And I think to some degree it's— 
what you said is, is is really important because there are allegations on both sides of of uh, malintent, right? So sometimes our companies and some of our public sector leaders will claim that Europe is being protectionist and is using the veil of values to hide behind action in this space. And in reverse, they'll say, well, there are human rights and you are not enabling the exercise of those human rights. Therefore, we need uh, data localization or, or in, in why we needed a privacy shield uh, to initiate that conversation. To some degree, I think um, as, as shocking and disturbing as an event as the Snowden revelations were, and they were internally for the Obama administration, I think for the president himself, it was challenging to think about, oh my God, what are we capable of? And then what should we be doing? And to some degree, I think the Cambridge Analytica situation was a wake-up call for the private sector in a very similar way. What is technology capable of enabling? What are we capable of building and allowing others to use our platforms to build? And what should be the guardrails on that? And I think we're a little bit hard on ourselves because if you think about it, the internet was commercialized in 1998. It hasn't been around that long. We didn't figure out the industrial society until we were well into it. So we as not, I'm no longer a policymaker. I was going to say we as policymakers. But policymakers are trying to adjust to a world that has fundamentally changed. And one of the things that I think our European colleagues have seen is that the World Wide Web, which is one form of technology that was built on the internet, was owned and is owned by Americans. I mean, the largest World Wide Web consumer-facing companies are American. You know, Facebook, Amazon, arguably Apple, which is which is whose technology is based on top of that. Uh, and they don't want to lose that in the industrial internet, which is what's coming next. Cars, everything being connected uh, machine to machine, and cities themselves and the organization of a city being a fully connected environment. So what they want to make sure, and I think is fair actually, is where, what are we doing to create a level playing field for entry into those new markets in a way that is consistent with values. So we're not pre-imposing or imposing rules and guidelines on a chaotic market before it develops, but have presumptions about what it is that we want to see come out of the development of these markets. And then you, you get into questions of philosophy around what the best way it is, it is to govern a market and what the, where you hedge risk, right? And we are much more, uh, much more free market market than Europe, dramatically so for the industrial age, and we will be for the information age. We just have a different vision of the role of government markets. But it is, like I said, we're not twins, but we're cousins. It's closer to each other than it is to the rest of the world. One of the interesting things you're seeing, though, is that take GDPR, for example. It's the general data protection regulations in Europe, which came into effect on May 25th of this year. It's a different vision for governing uh, data protection than we have in the United States, but it's being copied around the world. Uh, you see the, the model of GDPR being copied around the world. And to some degree, much like we were reactive to the Russians on the moonshot landing, to some degree, we are being reactive to the GDPR for how people's information in this new environment is to be managed and protected within the constructs of rules. And what I fear and what we don't have to do is react to the GDPR section by section and try to construct an American GDPR, but what we can construct a different solution when this more... Uh, that works better for us and I think could work better for innovation worldwide. This sounds a bit like there's a discussion and sometimes Europeans are broadly painted as the people who kind of want to hold back a little bit. But we have all these new abilities and we will have even more abilities coming down the uh, line with AI and so on. And there are some people who are more uh, maybe skeptical of what this might mean. And so they're arguing for rules that might kind of take a step back and let's not go too fast with uh, all of this and, and limit actually our technological abilities even, so to say. In the context of a race against other actors who may or may not have such inhibitions or actually probably won't. Um, let me ask Amy here, how does that interact? On the one hand, we're in this competition. Like if you if you put this out in the in the metaphor again, in the security context or so, the U.S. will never limit itself. It wouldn't by itself say, no, we shouldn't develop a better weapon or so because it wants to stay ahead of its competitors. But here we have population and in the, in the case of the transatlantic relations, even maybe two sides, Europe and the U.S., where one segment is arguing to voluntarily limit our abilities. How does this play out in the competition against others? So there was a really interesting um, Pew research study on automation in, here in the U.S. that, that found that Americans 
on the whole, I don't remember if it was a majority or a plurality, wanted to limit automation only to those jobs and industries that were undesirable to work in. It wasn't that they wanted a policy regime that meant, you know, you had a universal basic income, which is this idea that everybody gets money every month from the government or from whatever institution. Instead, they wanted to limit the technology to preserve certain types of work, which I found really interesting. And I do think that you have this challenge in the U.S. and Europe where there are a lot of rights and there's a lot that we have fought for over the last couple of decades. And our policy goals at the moment, the sort of most worthwhile policy goals, are about ensuring that everybody has access to the economic well-being and to the rights that so many of us, that the vast majority of us, have enjoyed for most of our lives. And it almost makes sense that you would say, hang on, why are we disrupting absolutely everything when it wasn't so bad and we just needed to tweak things, you know, really important things like health policy and minimum wage and all of that. Um, but we just needed to tweak those policies. We don't need another industrial revolution. The problem with that framework is the people, the, the whatever the body is that invents the technology gets to define the rules of how the technology is used, right? So if the private sector develops artificial intelligence, um, and they're at the forefront of that. The U.S. private sector is at the forefront of artificial intelligence. That means that AI is then used to de deliver advertising better, right, and to market consumer products. It's not necessarily used for, which in various different ways will probably be very good for people, um, but wouldn't be as good as if the public sector said, okay, we're going to use this to automate all of the jobs that people don't want to do, right? Um, if a China develops it, if Beijing develops artificial intelligence, it probably looks at artificial intelligence and says, we're going to use this to monitor everybody as much as we possibly can and organize society in a way that suits the Communist Party's objectives. And so it matters that you're at the forefront because whoever's at the forefront gets to set the rules, as they did with the internet, as they did with space. I think this is a really interesting point because it gets to how do you manage change? And I think what we saw very clearly in the last U.S. election is that there are a lot of Americans who feel like they've been the losers of globalization. And they're angry about economic loss they have experienced personally. They're angry that their children are not likely to achieve the economic status, never mind surpass their economic status. And there's also a sense of their cultural identity being frittered away by globalization. And I think many of those voters would like to hop off the globalization carousel. And in my mind, globalization isn't a choice. It's a reality of the 21st century. And in the same way, technology is a reality. And it's happening. And it's not really something we control in that sense because, yes, the U.S. could say, we're going to decide not to use technology in these particular areas of work, but that doesn't mean others won't. So it gets to how do you try to manage that change? And it takes us back to the transatlantic relationship because in the same way the U.S. has tried to manage trade policy or defense policy with others— it's started by trying to build a regime with its allies and then having others accede to that regime. I mean, I think those are both good examples, but trade is a, is a great one. And you saw the last administration, the Obama administration, wanting to extend that trade regime through the Trans-Pacific Partnership and then the Transatlantic um, in Investment Partnership as well. But it's about having a core that shares those rules and then extending them. We don't have anything like that that applies to technology. I mean, some people have written about should there be a Geneva Convention for tech, and I, this is what we're grappling with. And if Americans and Europeans can't sort the problems we have across the Atlantic, we're not going to be able to be the core of a rules-based order that applies to technology. Let me ask a follow-up question on that. So on the one hand, you have a country like China where it's an official policy and kind of it's a streamlined goal and, and so on. And here we have 
companies that are largely at the forefront of this. So, Amy, you talked about um, whoever's in, in the lead can set the rules. But right now, that would mean, is it private companies that determine what's what's allowed and what's not? Or at what point is government doing this? We we talked about GDPR, where clearly there has been a, a, a public catch-up. But right now, there is a lot of discussion, especially with companies Facebook and so on, that have come under scrutiny from um, public authorities for their behavior or, or their policies. Is how 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 do you manage that? How do you um, ensure? Is it a question of balance uh, where the government can uh, maybe regulate or, or so on without causing its own companies to lose in the broader battle? You know, I mean, that's a that's the big question, Please right? Have and, the solution, <laughs> right? Right, and and like I said, we're still in the early stages of responding to and trying to frame what a just information society looks like. We had some ideas of what a just industrial society would look like, and we never reached any sort of nirvana in that space, and we won't do so here either, right? But we can be better. We can do better. And when we talk about sort of the development of technology, artificial intelligence is is a, is a the, the hot sort of new thing, and facial recognition is one example of artificial intelligence. And you can see how it's being deployed in authoritarian regimes. And a lot of it gets to the questions, not of technology. I don't have to know how facial recognition technology works to know whether or not a use of it is good or bad, right? Uh, and one of the things that we've tried to, to argue and think about is not the regulation of technology, but the regulation of, of behavior, right? Whether it's commercial firms or government actors, what are the boundaries of behavior that we want to impose on this new market and this new way of being? And we don't, no one has really constructed an approach that everyone can agree on. Uh, but I do believe that because we have shared values and because as a market, the U.S. European market is a huge market, that we can establish norms of, of relations and norms of behavior that we can agree as being the, the pointing the right way forward and con contrasting with the way that some, some of the more authoritarian regimes are using these technologies so that it gives an alternative to uh, developing country democracies that want to adopt these technologies in ways that enable uh, what we consider traditional universal values. So let me just follow up on this. For example, you, you mentioned facial recognition uh, and how this would play out or is playing out in, in China. What would be then our response, for example, on something like this? I know that companies here obviously work on this technology, but at what point does the public, which, I mean, I can speak for myself here, I'm worried about how that could be used, of course. And I've read some stories that, you know, some people are experimenting with certain technologies. It often seems at first harmless. You know, you could use it for great purposes, but where do we draw the line? So this is a good example, I think. At when do we know, or how do we know when to step in? Or would we then cut off our own technological advancement because we do not allow the further development of technologies like this? That's why we have a process for communal negotiation of what should be rules. We call them laws, and we have a democratically elected representatives to come to these conclusions, right? So facial recognition technology can either identify a missing child in a stadium full of people or a terrorist in an airport, or it can be used to create and store a data of citizen behavior that you like or don't like over time and that you're willing to, uh, to take those people and put them on a list that you want to shame for behavior and ostracize to discourage future opposition to, to government or to, to leadership. For me, the goal here, both as a public servant and in, in the private marketplace, is to work to enable the development of technology in such a way as, it, as to democratize opportunity, democratize discourse, and democratize development, so that you're seeing a greater spread of benefits of wealth and opportunity. So like when you look at the globalization debate, the biggest problem with the globalization debate is the concentration of wealth and power, right? The problem in the technology situation is you're seeing it replicated. New York, Massachusetts, California, arguably the greatest beneficiaries by far of the development of the digital economy. Uh, Steve Case with his Rise of the Rest movement and others have talked about, well, how do you encourage or force the diffusion of the benefits of technology and the diffusion of capital creation to more of society? Right? And we didn't figure that out with globalization. And if we don't figure it out with technology, you will get a backlash to technology rooted in fear, very similar to the one you see in globalization. And I very much worry about that because I'm a tech optimist, because I believe that I believe in the force of progress and that the arc of the moral universe tilts towards justice. So 
you know, this, these are things that we want to promote. You want to promote innovation. You want to promote the development of ideas. But you also can't deny that we have to come to some sort of agreement for what is good and bad behavior with technology. And it strikes me that, two, there are lots of complicating factors when you think about technology, but two that leap to mind. One is, as Danny said, it's governments that we look to in the first instance to regulate and to make laws. And I think many people were struck in watching Mark Zuckerberg's testimony on the Hill that a lot of our lawmakers are not that comfortable talking about technology and the challenges and the opportunities that come from the tech revolution. So how do we think about our lawmakers in this space and help them be more fluent in that debate? And then the second point is that the U.S., since the end of World War II, has been the lead power in this international system. And the U.S., up until perhaps this current administration, has been comfortable trying to build a set of rules around the order that it built together with its allies. And a lot of our allies right now are questioning whether President Trump and the Trump administration want to see the U.S. continue to play that role. So I think both of those elements make it a particularly challenging moment to think about how technology advances and how we try to manage the implications of that. Yeah, I mean, to that point, so when the EU implemented GDPR, um, I was having conversations with various of the policymakers that were involved in it, they were very hopeful that it would be adopted around the world, right? That it would set a standard. In, in India, for instance, it's being held up as the standard. And to their mind, and this makes total sense if you look at it from a Brussels perspective, they would rather see the EU developing those rules um, that provides for incredible protection for citizen data, you know, with a bunch of other problems that go along with it, but with incredible protection for citizen data, rather than China with its cybersecurity law that means that companies don't get access to data, but the government does, um, or the U.S. companies that see U.S. companies get access to citizen data, but governments don't, right? So I think that there is on the EU side right now a sense of like, we're not necessarily with the U.S. on this, and it's up to us. We've got to go out there and preserve these rights. And do I understand you correctly? You think that has some they have a power there, not because they're such big economic actors, obviously, but because others like India so and might actually feel similarly or... No, I mean, they do have economic power. They're the biggest trading sure. block in the world. And when it comes to privacy, that's a huge issue because the digital market is the growing market, right? So that a lot of countries want in their free trade agreements or, you know, they want to have arrangements with the EU that allow for data to transfer. So that's absolutely part of it. But the GDPR was also a calling card for privacy advocates, whether they were in California or in India or Brazil or really, you know, anywhere that was looking for privacy regulation. There's also this, you know, we talked about the broader race, let's say, between China and the U.S., but the U.S. companies that are leading this on the U.S. side also have an interest in China that's a more economic interest. How how does that play out? Is there is there a conflict there between what the U.S. government, maybe not this one, but in general, might want and what private sector U.S. wants access to this huge market and, and or in the case of Apple, production there or, or whatnot. So how does that work? So it's a really interesting time to be talking about this because Google, um, it just came out that Google has been exploring plans to launch a search engine again, had done this before, um, but to launch a search engine again in China that would comply with Chinese government censorship requirements and other possible laws and frameworks that we don't know about. Um, and a bunch of U.S. senators, and I think also House representatives, said um, this is absolutely abhorrent. We don't, we don't think that this is a good idea, and we will question you about it. But it's interesting to watch what's been going on with Google over the last little stretch, because Google, and, and I'm focusing on Google right now just because of the news that's that's been coming out about this, but it's it's been a debate within most of the companies, especially the platform companies, right? So the platform companies are, you know, the Twitters and the Googles and the Facebooks rather than the Amazons and the Apples. Um, 
but within the platform companies where there are serious questions about you know, the business model, the the value that these companies offer to their users conflicts with authoritarian norms, right? The Facebook mission to connect the world isn't something that a China is supportive of. Google's mission to give people access to information and to organize the world's information isn't something that's compatible with an authoritarian regime. And so they've been really conflicted about it. But China is the biggest market. China has is the biggest growing market as well. And China is also home to the competitors that could most likely unseat these companies globally, right? So they also need to get in that market now so that they're competing with them. So they're in a really difficult position. Um, And with Google, what happened just before the search engine issue came up was they'd been working with the Defense Department on um, something called Project Maven, DeepMind, which is the sort of elite artificial intelligence arm of of Google, had been working with the U.S. Defense Department. And the engineers um, said, we absolutely won't work on a project that sees the weaponization of our research. Um, And so there's also, there's this weird ethical framework that exists within these companies because they have employees, they have consumers, they have leadership, they have, they have to make, and they have to balance sort of how do they manage their brand versus how do they make economic decisions versus how do they keep their employees incentivized. And so you've just got this sort of mess of things that results in a total lack of consistency when it comes to making these decisions. Um, maybe, the, um, Danny, I can ask you from this, where do you think, if we, if we think about this as a battle, where do we stand currently? Is this currently, is the U.S. leading? China's catching up? Is China already way ahead in some segments? Is it depending on where you look? I think it's depending on where you look. And actually, Europe presents a fair amount of, of leadership opportunities in spaces like, like car-to-car communications or in, in, in the industrial uh, internet as well because they do have a large industrial base that recognizes the need to, to modernize. Uh, what I think China gets right, as Amy pointed out, is having a senior leadership all the way to the top perspective that this matters, that you need to marshal the forces and attention of your country to winning in this space. We have lost that to some degree domestically. We're not investing in research, basic research and development the way we should. We are not investing in our our university institutions the way we should. We are not investing in STEM the way we should across our educational system. So for example, I think, I forgot who said, maybe it was Brad Smith at Microsoft, that every high school student should have at least one or two years of curriculum training in coding, right, in computer science. That it should be a basics, like the next reading, writing, arithmetic in computer science. Like, to succeed in the future, you don't need to know. You don't need to know how to code a computer, but you need to know the basics. You don't like. You don't need to know how to write a novel, but you do need to know how to write, right? In order to be successful in the modern economy. So I think it kind of depends in that space. What what I think um, we get right. What I think America gets right is this affirmative celebration of innovation this affirmative celebration of challenging uh, sort of old power, this affirmative celebration of decentralized democratization of access to to information, services, and freedom of expression and freedom of association using technologies. So when we look at the China Google example, right, it's very easy for a politician to get up and criticize Google for saying, all right, you've said don't be evil. You said you want to make access to information universally available. It's wholly inconsistent with those values for you to go into China and do business. Um, that's all true. They're a private sector company and they can spend their capital and enter markets as they see fit. And there are already plenty of American competitors in the Chinese market. I don't know how you say that and then say it's okay for Apple to manufacture in in China and sell lots of phones in China and their iCloud information is relatively available to the Chinese government. So what what I think the responsibility of the US government is is to criticize China, right? You go to the you go to the United Nations, you go to, you know, some of the other international human rights organizations and you say, "Look, these practices, we believe these practices of censorship, regardless of who is enabling them, are fundamentally wrong." And that we as a global community should criticize them. And that's what I did for four years. But, the, I mean, then the Chinese have a counter, right? They would argue, if you look at the Snowden situation, that we're no better than they are. And you have to have 
so it's, it's cyclical and you can go on and on and on. But we do need to form an alliance of people. There is no reason why the United States, Europe, Brazil, and India couldn't sit on the same page on this question, right? We are democracies that enable the expression of human thought and ideas, and we allow for freedom of association, right? The degree to which the Chinese government is using technology to disable the exercise of those rights is a fundamental affront to all of us. And we should be united in that space. But because we have divisions on many, many other things, it has been very hard for us to come together and start talking and thinking about, well, what does a just information society look like? So that might be a good point to actually come to a final round and kind of look forward. And I want to ask Karen, given your experience working in government, especially in international settings, in your mind, what what would it take to, as Danny said, work together in, in this form? I mean, we have certain existing institutions, this, you know, G20, G7, um, the trade agreements you discussed earlier. How even to tackle this uh, from a policymaker's point of view so that we can come um, to, to these agreements? Is this something that we can use existing models like multilateral treaties and so forth? Or is that just not working in this sector from your point of view? How would you even think about it? What strikes me is the vibrancy of the debate within countries at this point. And I think we have to first deal with that before we can think about international cooperation. And I just think about the Google example or Facebook. How much has changed just in the past two years? Amy and I were out in San Francisco two years ago, and at that point, all of the tech companies were in the space of believing they were forces for good. And Cambridge Analytica was a bombshell for most Americans to think about how their data was being used. So you look at the Facebook example, they're in such a different place today than they were even just two years ago. And the amount of money that Facebook is now having to spend on the privacy agenda, we just saw them recently close down more fake accounts, so they didn't use that term. And you think about the Google example. Yes, Google was active in China before, but Google very publicly left China because they didn't want to censor the search engine in the way that the Chinese government asked them to. So it's striking to me that in 2018, Google is willing to think about creating a censored search engine. Now, Danny's right. I mean, private companies are private companies, and they're out to make money. And it's for governments to articulate the values that we believe in. But I'm struck at how different this debate is today than it was even two years ago. And I think we have a lot of work to do in the United States about what are the things we want to prioritize in this debate. And there's a question about how we want to regulate tech companies, but there's also a question for the U.S. government about does it want to play a leadership role in bringing together like-minded democracies to say, let's clearly articulate the values like free speech that we hold dear, and then from that, think about how we collectively could try to be a constructive force globally. Amy, do you have any thoughts on this, how to approach it internationally or transatlantically? So my sense is that what we're missing is a sort of broader vision about where we're trying to go. I think that, and this this is true beyond just the technology space. Technology should be instrumentalized to advance goods and justice that we care about, right? Um, I think that China has a clear idea about where it wants to go, and that is an uh, that's a vision that is broadly accepted by the people who remember poverty and awful poverty, um, not having potable water, famine. This is lived experience for a lot of people. And so a vision that says, this is a country of 1.2 billion people. We need to organize everybody. We need to build trust. We need to build institutions. We need to get, you know, the remaining few hundred thousand people into a better world. And we need to keep progressing your economic well-being. That's a vision that sells, right, in China and in other developing countries. We don't have that 
in the U.S. and Europe. We don't have a framework that says what we want is a just information society. What we want, where we're trying to go, is a place in which, you know, we're using technology to further liberate people um, from economic drudgery, from, you know, whatever it is people want to be liberated from to further enable individual choice. There's really no one making that argument. Um, and so I, I'm very, um, I'm very concerned at the moment that the political classes, with the exception perhaps of Macron, who I think has a vision but isn't necessarily, you know, it'd be good if there was some competition there. Um, I don't think that the political classes are really engaged in that debate. And I think we need to have a debate about what that vision should be. Um, when you looked at the presidential debate, uh, the U.S. 2016 presidential debates, technology wasn't mentioned, right. right? Not at all. There was a question about cybersecurity, and that was it. We're not having among the political classes in really any country a debate about what we want the future to look like. Good. So we're ending on a call to action from Amy here. Okay, good. Let's uh, wrap this up with our regular segment that we have called Think or Tank. So we're going to mention something that made us think or that we thought tanked. So Danny, you're the guest. You can start. Thank you very much. Um, so for my think, I want to talk a little bit about uh, another podcast called The Wilderness that John Favreau, uh, who is Barack Obama's speechwriter, uh, has started. And the, the reason I want to talk about it is all very good. But the one that came out today was about the Democratic Party and immigration. And though it talks about largely the fight that then-Senator Kennedy waged on the floor of the United States Senate to, to bring immigration reform about, and Cecilia Munoz, who worked in the White House but was then an immigration activist, worked with him on. And then at the end, she talks about how, in retrospect, uh, much of the immigration advocacy community wishes they could have that moment back where we had passed a bill in the Senate, but we didn't want it to go to conference with the House because we thought that the House bill was so bad that we wouldn't be able to get to a place where we could defend a final bill. And Senator Kennedy was arguing, no, what you want here is progress, and then you will build on it. Yes, it's going to be an imperfect bill, and then you will build on it. And instead, we weren't we didn't go to conference, we didn't get anything, and now we're many years later, 10 years later, without having made any progress, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry for the, for the long story, but then she talks about how after that, after having lost, Senator Kennedy brought people together um, and talked about the joy of the fight. That the joy is as much in the struggle for whatever vision of justice you're pursuing as it is in its attainment. Uh, and that's why, for me, that's the purpose of service. That's the, the purpose of trying to solve problems uh, is, is not just in solving them, but in bringing people and communities together to get to yes um, and learning along the way. So it was a really moving episode of The Wilderness for me, and I would, I would commend it to, to anyone. Karen. So I have two hopefully short things which will add up to Danny's longer um, thought there, which was really compelling. One thing was an article that probably a lot of people have seen in The Atlantic that Henry Kissinger wrote about how the Enlightenment ends. And the reason I wanted to lift it up was I was really struck at how he started the piece, saying he was at a conference and there was a segment on artificial intelligence and he was going to walk out because this wasn't his issue. But he ended up being captured by something one of the speakers said and stayed. And I thought, this is part of the problem. Amy was mentioning the presidential debate didn't even talk about technology. And I thought, if there's this is a 95-year-old man who has gotten fascinated by the role of artificial intelligence. And I think we need as many Americans as possible to engage in this debate and really think about what is a just society where technology plays a key role mean. And so I just wanted to lift up this example as someone at 95 being captivated by a new topic he hadn't thought about before. And of course, he raises some really important issues around the morality and ethics of AI, and as the title suggests, how the Enlightenment ends. So that was one piece. And the second thing is it gets to a point Amy raised about what 
is it that we're working toward? What is the goal that we want to lift up? And for people like me who are policy wonks, we talk about the liberal international order, which doesn't translate at all. When people hear liberal, they think politically, capital L, liberal, and, you know, what do we really mean by this rules-based order? And Mark Grossman, who is one of our country's, I think, most acclaimed diplomats, rightly so. He also happens to be a trustee of the German Marshall Fund, recently put out a piece on Yale Global Online. And basically, he's making the case for U.S. global leadership. And rather than using these terms that people like me use all the time, he puts in very plain language ideas around American leadership that I really think can rally American citizens as they think about what international role they want to see the U.S. play and how that leadership role by the U.S. can help protect U.S. interests. And he basically puts in five very simple sentences why the U.S. should be invested in this international order. So the first is America's global power and influence are good for Americans. Two, America is more powerful and prosperous when there are clear rules and we set them. Three, America's power and influence are multiplied when we work with other countries. Four, America is better off having more democracies in the world rather than more autocrats and dictators. And finally, Americans are richer when America is the world leader in the global economic system. And I thought those five sentences capture why Americans should be invested in the U.S. playing a leadership role internationally. I think that sounds like we uh, should try to get Ambassador Grossman to come on this podcast and make that case. Sounds very convincing. Uh, I bet he'd convincing. love to. That's yeah. a great idea. We'll reach out. Amy, what do you have for us? So it's halfway between a think and a tank, and I think it's intended to be. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so Roger Cohen, who's a, a columnist, <laughs> a thank you. <yeah. laughs> um, Roger Cohen, who's a columnist with the New York Times, wrote an op-ed, and so this is the tank piece, headlined, Airbnb is the new NATO. So there are lots of, um, for our listeners, there are lots of sort of open mouths around the table here. Um, but it's a, it's an interesting framework. So I'll, I'll just read a little section of it. Um, the nation state is trumpeted. The nation state is redundant. Perhaps the trumpeting is linked to the redundancy. The natural state of politics becomes theater. It is most comp- its most compelling actors, however buffoonish, prosper. They strut the stage mouthing fantasies. They babble and veer. The digital undercurrent, meanwhile, is steady. It leads people to make leaps of trust, like getting into a stranger's car. It prizes efficient use of resources. It opens the world. Um, And so essentially, the piece, it's very short. You could probably read it in the amount of time it's going to make, it's going to take me to describe it. But um, the piece essentially says, you know, we're at a completely new point in history and we're focused on the old actors and maybe everything has changed so radically that we should be looking at, you know, how Airbnb and the sharing economy facilitates global connections and then amplifying that way of doing things. So optimistic as opposed to my very pessimistic (laughs) framework as I could go. Great. We can use optimism. With that, I want to thank our listeners and thank our producer, Zach Tarrant, as always. And we'll talk to you soon. Out of Order is a German Marshall Fund podcast hosted by Rachel Tausenfreund and Peter Sparding. Zachary Tarrant is our audio producer.